This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Friday, March 3rd, 2017, from Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I don't know if you know this about me, but I do play in a uh, funk band. I play bass in a funk band, a Parliament Funkadelic cover band. They're called the Mothership Connections. We're emerging of uh, the all-girls band, The Brides of Funkenstein, uh, featuring lead singer Senator Diane Funkstein with another band, the Interplanetary Funksmanship quartet that was my old band but i digress so we're looking to hire a new drummer we're looking to uh, cut an album and get a drummer an experienced musician we need a drummer and so we wanted to get a, a good session musician a good studio player word went out and uh an application came in so let's call this guy on joe so we talked to joe and he gives me a tape where the drumming seems fine i have him in and the conversation goes well. What I usually like to do is actually jam with the guy, but you know, the rest of uh, the Mothership Connections were out. So I said to him, are you playing anywhere live? And he said, yeah. And he gave me the time and the place. And I did say to him, there's one more thing. And you, in listening to this story, should know this too. I said, there's there's this other band, just one other band. It's a great scene. We love the funk scene. But there's uh, there's this other band on the funk cover scene. Maybe you've heard of them. Funkstein Bar Syndrome. They started out as this like, group of like kind of a male model funk band, you know, hunka funka. They put on a little weight. They became chunka funka for a while. They found they had a pretty big gay following, uh, let the uh, body hair go, and they became the uh, Funkenstein Bears. Anyway, the Funkenstein Bears, they just, they're all up in our business all the time. I mean, we have just a few, I guess if you call it that, I really don't think it's us. It goes back a long way. If you want to really get into the details of this, there is one of the best journalists who's covering all this is a great blogger who writes under the uh, name David Funkenflick. Anyway, we have had trouble with Funkstein Bar Syndrome. It's just stupid stuff. They're always going on the internet trying to undermine us on web postings or whatever. We just want you, Joe, to steer clear of them. And we just want to know if you've had any contact with them. And this guy said no. And I said, will you tell me if you do? And he said, yeah. Okay, fine. It all seems cool. I got the date. I got the time of the gig. I go there. I guess I wasn't looking at the name of the band on the marquee, guess who it was? It was Funkstein Bar Syndrome. You know, former chunka funka hunka funka Funkenstein Bears. Same guys. So the lead singer, Funkleberry Flynn, he's on mic and he's saying, sitting in with us for the first time on drums, it's Joe, this guy Joe. And I couldn't believe it. But it turns out I may have dodged a bullet because he's terrible. He's terrible. He could just not keep time. You don't have to know much about drumming, but just know this. A drummer has to keep time, and the guy could not do the basic job of a drummer. Couldn't keep time for the band. So I'm kind of talking around to some of the other people on the funk scene that I know. In fact, David Funkenflick is there, and so I ask Funkenflick, what is the deal with Joe? And he says, you know, he's a nice guy. Everyone he's played with, all his former colleagues, he's a nice guy, good heart. And I say, yeah, but can he do the basic job? And Funkenflick says, nah, they say he's a good guy, good colleague, though you should no, Funkenflick tells me, if he's going to join your funk band, he is said to have kind of a problem with black people. What? 
This is a total non-starter. I mean, it is not literally in the description, but how could you be a funk musician in good standing and have a problem with African-Americans? That is funked up. So the next day, Joe calls me up and he says, you know, what did you think? And I said, you know, I, I thought you were a professional, but you couldn't keep time. Your former colleagues like you and all, but they can't swear to it that you could do your basic job. You met with Funkstein Barr syndrome after saying you wouldn't. And oh yeah, there's this like crazy disturbing fact about black people in you. And he was like, I don't understand. What's the problem? And I was just livid. And I said, all right, let me bullet point it. One, ill-equipped to do your basic job. Two, problem with African-Americans. Three, maybe a nice guy, but not qualified. Four, you claim you didn't meet with guys who you turned out to have met with. I thought you were a session musician. And he said, no, I'm a Jeff Sessions musician. On the show today, little known fact, our president occasionally engages in prevarication that just investigates. But first, not actual Jeff Session musicians, but musician musicians, a musical rundown. The year is 2012, and our guest is Chris Malamphy. The year 2012 doesn't seem that far away, but think about all the people who are in charge of countries that uh, are no longer around. In Egypt, Morsi was president. Colombia, Hugo Chavez was president. Guy's dead now. And in the United States of America, Barack Obama was president. Oh, so long ago. (laughs) Also, that was the year when he came out. First time ever for gay marriage. 2012 wasn't that long ago, but as we count down the hits of the year, perhaps it will evoke some nostalgia. I'm here with Chris Malamphy. He helps me in this endeavor. He writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate. Hello, Chris. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right, Mike. How are so you? So sometimes we have to go rat-a-tat to get through a bunch of songs, even though, and I checked the calendar, 2012 was a standard year. In fact, there was an extra day. It was a leap year year. Right. Yes. Uh, there weren't that many number one hits. No, there weren't. I-, I would call this, in fact, I called this at the time. Uh, when I was writing about the chart hits of this year, uh, the year of the snowball smash. Uh, you would have hits huh. that, that would go to number one and sit stone for a couple of months apiece. Um, I, I would attribute that to the fact that this was the year when hits would go viral. Interestingly, YouTube was not a factor on the charts yet in 2012. Billboard added YouTube data to the charts the very next year, 2013. But you can see YouTube's fingerprints all over the hits of 2012. For example, the song of the summer, Call Me Maybe, by Carly Rae Jepsen. Uh, I think we can all remember, again, we're only talking about five years ago, that Mm -hmm. moment when everybody was not only enjoying Call Me Maybe, but watching viral videos featuring Call Me Maybe, doing a lip sync video to Call Me Maybe. Uh, That summer's swim team at the Olympics did a lip dub to Call Me Maybe. Uh, And while none of this data, this YouTube data, actually counted for the Hot 100 at this time, it definitely made hits bigger. Uh, And so the feedback loop that you had between YouTube, where people were sharing and sharing and sharing these videos, and then sales and airplay, the two major factors in the Hot 100 at the time, especially digital sales. Digital sales were at their all-time height in 2012. A a big hit record could sell six, seven million copies. That would put number one hits on top for months on end. Call Me Maybe was number one for over two months. Somebody that I used to know, the number one hit of the year by Gautier was number one, again, for about eight or nine weeks. Yeah. Uh, to my annoyance, because it should be somebody who I used to know. Now you're just somebody that I used to know. 
but Goitier, guy's like not American or something. He is not. Uh, Gautier, interestingly, he has a really interesting background. He was born in Belgium. But when you hear him uh, do interviews and when he gave his uh, acceptance speech at the Grammys the next year, he's got an Australian accent because he was actually raised in Melbourne. Somebody that I used to know was a firework for him and a, and a one-off. He had the number one song of 2012, an enormous, enormous hit. Again, YouTube is a major factor. The song came out in 2011, but what finally caught it on was a very arresting, simple video of him and his duet partner, Kimbra, standing against a painted background. The, the video was shared tens of millions of mm. times, and it helped fuel the song up the charts. Beyond the virality of Call Me Maybe, going back to that, just as a song, that is kind of a perfect pop song. It I really mean, is. It's it's identifiable. The singer uh, or the you know protagonist uh, is... Any teenager can identify with that angst. You got the violins as it swells to a great chorus. Mm -hmm. It really works well. Hey, I just met you. You could say that Call Me Maybe is the first number one hit we can credit to Justin Bieber. He's nowhere on the credits huh. to the record, but uh, like Carly Rae Jepsen from British Columbia, uh, Justin Bieber is Canadian. Uh, the campaign to make Call Me Maybe a number one hit was basically launched by a tweet by Justin Bieber early in 2012, where he talked up Call Me Maybe, said this is the best pop record out there right now. And that got all of his many, many fans listening to Call Me Maybe. And that kicked off the, the campaign that made it one of the biggest hits of the year. The first number one hit of the year uh, by LMFAO, Laugh My Rehur Ass Off, was uh, Sexy and I Know It. That had a fun video. Girl, look at that body. Girl, look at that body. Girl, look at that body. I work out. LMFAO were very short-lived. They were not on the charts for very long, now, they but they do have two huge number one hits. They're like uh, music royalty, aren't they? They are. Nepotistically kissed? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, one member is a, I believe, nephew of Barry Gordy. There you uh, go. Not the first Barry Gordy relation to make the charts back Was in the Rockwell? 1980s. Rockwell, <laughs> yes, had a, a huge number two hit uh, with uh, Somebody's Watching Me in 1984 <laughs> that became a hit largely because Michael Jackson sang on it. Why did Michael Jackson sing on it? Because he's related to Barry Gordy. Uh, so Rockwell, Rockwell's Barry Gordy's son. Barry yeah. Gordy's son. Yeah. And Red Foo of uh, LMFAO is Barry Gordy's nephew. So there's there's a royalty connection there. Uh, Adele charted with Set Fire to the Rain. Yes. Again, this is a, a bit of a holdover of a streak that started in 2011. This is Adele on her blockbuster 21 album, the biggest album, not just of the 2010s, but pretty much the entire uh, century to date. Twenty One was an enormous juggernaut. It was the number one album of both 2011 and 2012. At the very moment that set fire to the rain, which, by the way, is the third number one hit uh, from Twenty One after Rolling in the Deep and Somebody Like You. When set fire to the rain went to number one, uh, Adele was in the process of winning an, a boatload of Grammys, including Album of the Year at that year's Grammy Awards. Yeah, the year started off after Sexy and I Know We mentioned the Adele song. Rihanna's up there. Kelly Clarkson's up there. Katy Perry's up there. So you have uh, Young Divas. Yeah, it's a, it's a good year for Young Divas. What basically happened at the turn of the 2010s and what differentiates the charts of the early 2010s from where we're recording now in 2017 is that this is the apex of what I would call turbo pop. Mm -hmm. uh, not a term I invented, by the way. I, I borrowed that from my friend Sean Ross. 
Strauss, who's a radio analyst. And basically, he talked about records that were synthy, dancey, and had kind of a sore. It's also a very good year for Max Martin and the Swedish uh, team that he has built at, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Sharon or Chiron Studios in Sweden, uh, C-H-E-I-R-O-N. They are the studio factory responsible for scores of number one hits. They have several. I believe it's Shores of number one hits. Shores of number one hits, yes. <laughs> they have number one hits this year with uh, Stronger, What Doesn't Kill You by Kelly Clarkson. Not a Max Martin song, but a, a song produced by others in his stable. Part of Me by Katy Perry. That's a Dr. Luke record teaming up with Max Martin. Later in the year, there's a number one hit by uh, Max Martin and Shellback called uh, One More Night by Maroon 5, a nine-week number one hit. Nine um, weeks. Wow. Nine weeks. Maroon 5. Maroon Save 5. the inauguration. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> and uh, finally, one of the biggest uh, number one hits of the fall is uh, We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, which, believe it or not, is the first number one hit for Taylor Swift, oh. who is in the process of making her country to pop transfer at this very moment. Uh, she teamed with Max Martin on that album, on the biggest hits on that album. And of course, um, a couple years later on the album 1989, she scores even more number one hits, always teaming with Max Martin and Shellback, his uh, assistant. So there are only a couple songs we haven't gotten to. One is uh, We Are Young by Fun. And this was this was part of the trend, the anthemic rock trend, maybe a little emo. And it does seem not that much in keeping with uh, some of the other songs that charted this year. Yeah, Fun's uh, number one hit, We Are Young, is a bit of an outlier. It was an enormous hit. It was number one for uh, six weeks. And it, too, had a bit of a viral thing going, although probably a more traditional form of virality. It was featured in several advertisements. Uh, on that year's Super Bowl, it was prominently featured in a Chevy ad, uh, which uh, was what kind of kicked off its run up the charts. Nothing says young like a Chevy. Ad. Nothing says young like a Chevy. Uh, fun <laughs> no, are... It says fun like a Chevy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, fun are a New York-based band. Also interesting side note, We Are Young is supported by Janelle Monet. Uh, this is Janelle Monet's not only only number one hit, but only top 40 hit. Uh, and you can barely hear her on there, but there's a la-la-la part uh, in the chorus. That, she got uh, a credit for that. And she got a credit for that. Oh. She, she actually sings backing vocals throughout it, but you can hear her most clearly on the la 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 part of the chorus here are the other two number one hits of the year whistle by flow rider Florida. what can we say about florida florida is an interesting figure he starts scoring i know hits. what state he's from yes yes one guess about where florida is from the sunshine state Florida is an interesting character in that he is a nominal rapper who doesn't really have much to do with rap. He is, yells. He yells sometimes. He does. But more to the point, he was he's what I would call a club rapper. I would put him in the same category as what the Black Eyed Peas became. He is not what you would call a core rap artist, not the sort of act you're going to hear on Hot 97, uh, New York's, you know, hip hop radio station. But my goodness, he's enormously successful. He keeps having hits. Uh, he had hits in the late uh, 2000s, such as Low and Right Round, which, by the way, is written by the same team of songwriters, Max Martin and Dr. Luke, who are, you know, known for their pop hits. Right. Uh, and then, uh, you know, this hit uh, from 2012, Whistle, frankly, this could have been recorded by almost anybody. It's it's a big club pop record, but does it belong in the category of hip hop? Broadly speaking, yes, but I would call it more like a pitbull hit than I would call it like a rap hit. I'm betting you like people, and I'm betting you love freak mode. 
And I'm betting you like girls to give love to girls and stroke your little ego. Flo Rida, again, in keeping with his more more pop sensibility, he will basically team up with whoever will get him a hit. I mean, Right Round is a record that he did with Dr. Luke, the pop smith. Uh, Whistle has, you know, about a half dozen, you know, credits on it. Uh, he did co-write it, but he is basically a guy who doesn't sell a whole lot of albums, but sells a truckload of singles yeah. and continually scores hits on the on the Hot 100. Just last year, 2016, he had a number, another enormous top five hit called My House. So uh, he keeps scoring hit after hit. Yeah, God is my co-pilot and Flo Rida is my co-rider. All right, last number one hit of the year, literally, and the one we're going to talk about, Locked Out of Heaven by Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars might be locked out of heaven, but he ascends to the number one on the Billboard charts. That was right some good Casey Kasem. So uh, tell uh, Bruno's been there before. Yes, this is not Bruno's first number one hit. He had a couple in uh, 2010, 2011 with uh, songs like Just the Way You Are and Grenade. Uh, but Locked Out of Heaven is one of his bigger number one hits. What's most interesting about Locked Out of Heaven is how much it sounds like the police. It is a pretty naked attempt to imitate the sound of Sting. Uh, I think you could take every Bruno Mars hit and say it is a pretty naked attempt to imitate the sound of. And that's not always bad. No, it's not. I mean, yeah. right? Like, I mean, later on that He's same working album. working in established traditions. Exactly. Yeah. Never had much faith in love or miracles. Ooh. Unless I'm lonely then, no one here but me. Bruno Mars, I, I want to give him credit. I'm, I'm a fan. I, I find him a very adept singer-songwriter. Yes. He writes most of his hits. He has a, a team of songwriters who call, who call themselves the Smeezingtons, him and two of his buddies who write most of his hits. He's written hits for other people. He wrote, um, can I curse on your uh, yeah, podcast, please. Mike? He wrote Fuck You for CeeLo. Uh, that's a Smeezingtons record co-written by Bruno Mars. So he's a talented writer. And as you point out, he has been known to write in various modes. For example, later on this same album, he scored a hit with uh, the record Treasure, which sounds like, uh, you know, vintage Michael Jackson from the early 80s. Um, so he's a very skilled style mimic, but the records are all his own. And Locked Out of Heaven sounds very much like a vintage police record, so much so that at that year's Grammys, the 2013 Grammys, uh, they actually brought Sting out to perform the song with Bruno Mars. Oh, he wasn't above it, huh? No, not at all. Sting will go where he needs to go to... Uh, Remind people of his relevance. But there, I remember 2012. And Call Me Maybe was the ubiquitous song. But if there was another one, it doesn't show up on this chart. Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style is a number two hit, which is why technically uh, we shouldn't be talking about it among the number one hits of 2012. But it casts an enormous shadow. As I mentioned, YouTube data did not count for the Hot 100 in 2012. It began to count in 2013. If it had counted, Gangnam Style would have been a number one hit for months. It peaked at number two behind the Maroon 5 song, One More Night. And it was not an enormous airplay hit, although it should be noted, remarkably, uh, Gangnam Style wound up in, I believe, the top 15 on the airplay chart, the Billboard airplay chart. Just think about that for a minute. A song mostly in Korean, yeah. uh, a K-pop song, was for a time one of the, not the very biggest, but one of the bigger records being played on American radio. And why? Because Gangnam Style, the video, was the biggest viral phenomenon of 2012. By the way, it remains to this day the biggest YouTube video of all time. Not music video, video period. It has been viewed 2.7 billion times around the world. 
They changed the way they calibrated the charts after that, right? That's right. I mean, honestly, when Billboard changed the charts in early 2013 to begin counting uh, YouTube, it was widely perceived that this was in part a reflection of Gangnam Style, a song that probably should have been a number one hit and frankly got robbed out of being a number one hit because YouTube didn't count for the charts at the time. Chris Malamphy writes the Why Is This Song Number One column for Slate, and he counts down the greatest hits of, as of now, very recent years with us here on this show. This was 2012. That was Chris. Thank you so much. You got it, Mike. Anytime. And now the spiel. The other day I was on TV debating, well, having it out with Trump advisor and possible future administration member of the sale of his investment firm goes through Anthony Scaramucci. Scaramucci called Trump in this segment on MSNBC a great communicator. And I said, I do not think you can apply that label, great communicator, to someone who lies so frequently. Scaramucci counter-argued. Michael. Mm-hmm. I know you guys are upset about it. He Please won. stop saying okay. you guys. And then the anchor, Stephanie Rule, jumped in and she talked about fact versus feelings about fact. And Scaramucci wound up putting it this way. Here, here are some of the facts that I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stock market is up 10-ish percent. Uh, American businesses, corporations, large Michael's and small talking about expecting... President Trump telling lies. Okay, but, but hold on a second. Okay, we disagree about that. I don't think he's telling lies. If you want to sit here and litigate that during this segment, we can it's do that. It's not disagree. Disagree it's is not, a matter of not, opinion. Michael, Michael, Maybe the lies have an effect of causing the stock market. Anyway, it should be noted that a couple hours after this TV appearance, Scaramucci took to Twitter to opine about the state of the Jewish community center bombing story, and he said it's not clear yet who the JCC offenders are. Don't forget the Democrats at the Democrats effort to incite violence at Trump rallies. Now, I took that to mean either the Jews were bombing themselves or the Jews were inciting other people to bomb as means to make these as yet unknown assailants look bad. Scarmucci said it was just a lesson to always reserve judgment. So today there was the arrest of a former Intercept journalist, not really a journalist, just the guy who made up stories and got hired to do it. Uh, eight of the bomb threats were called in by this nudnik, Many Trump followers were giving Scaramucci credit for having nailed that. I don't see how those dots connect, but okay, like the lesson goes, reserve judgment. Anyway, what we were talking about, the lies of Donald Trump, it's not that they're unknown, it's not that they're entirely undocumented, but if anything, some are less documented than others. Some are underanalyzed. So what I wanted to do was bring to the light these things that should never have been said in the first place. Let's take a couple of statements from his grand, glorious, agenda-resetting statement to the joint session of Congress. There he talked about the unemployment rate. Actually, it wasn't the unemployment rate. It was another rate that sounded a lot like the unemployment rate. 94 million Americans are out of the labor force. Over 43 million people are now living in poverty. Now, here's James Fallows in The Atlantic, and Fallows was a Carter speechwriter, you should know as I quote him, and he says, it's true, the 94 million out of the workforce, but only if you include people who've retired, have disabilities, are still in high school or college, or for a variety of other reasons aren't looking for jobs, which is to say, it's completely false in the context in which Trump used it, and its preposterousness has been pointed out before. 
I know, this is Fallow's writing, that the economics team would have given me trouble if I had tried to put a cooked figure like that into one of Jimmy Carter's State of the Union addresses. I believe the same would have been true in other administrations. Beyond that excellent point is this point. The number is sloppy, so that's not good. It's a sloppy number. But most of the time, sloppy numbers are used to serve a greater argument. For instance, Trump was sloppy during that speech with his estimation of how much the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have cost. He said they have cost $6 billion. It's closer to three. They could wind up costing $6 billion. So that's a sloppy figure, but the overall strategy is sound shock people with the expense of a policy that they think wasn't worth it to sell them on a different policy they think is worth it and is expensive, but not as expensive as the bad policy. I get that. But the 94 million in the workforce number, it's sloppy numbers and it's sloppy strategy. On the campaign trail, talking down the economy had a purpose for Trump. But now that he's president, by bringing up that number, He's just calling for him to be evaluated on that very same number years from now. And he can't bring it down that much. In fact, if you know stuff about economics, or even if you don't, it is true that our current unemployment rate at 4.7% is about as low as it can go, most economists think, without having bad economic effects. You know, the economic effects that are the bad ones. It'll start sparking inflation as it gets close to 4%. Not just the number, but the actual number of people. As more people are employed, we get to full employment, and then bad things like inflation happen with the economy. I'm not sure that Trump knows this or has thought this out. Anyway, here's another, not a lie, but a misleading part of the speech. Here it is in full. Currently, when we ship products out of America, many other countries make us pay very high tariffs and taxes. But when foreign companies ship their products into America, we charge them nothing or almost nothing. I just met with officials and workers from a great American company, Harley-Davidson. In fact, they proudly displayed five of their magnificent motorcycles made in the USA on the front lawn of the White House. And they wanted me to ride one, and I said, no, thank you. (laughs) At our meeting, I asked them, how are you doing? How is business? They said that it's good. I asked them further, how are you doing with other countries, mainly international sales? They told me without even complaining, because they have been so mistreated for so long that they've become used to it, that it's very hard to do business with other countries because they tax our goods at such a high rate. They said that in the case of another country, they tax their motorcycles at 100%. They weren't even asking for a change, but I am. All right, so here's the story, the real story. The country seems to be India. There's a 100% tariff on motorcycles coming into India. That's true. Here's how much Harley-Davidson pays. Nothing, because they have a factory in India. So their cycles aren't imports there. They don't pay the tax. In fact, having a factory in India gives Harley-Davidson a leg up on competitions from outside India who are hurt by the tariff. Now, it's also true that Indonesia has a 100% tariff. So maybe that's the country Trump was talking about. Who knows? But we do know this 
about this company that's said to be hurting on the international trade front. Wall Street Journal headline from April, Harley Davidson gets boost from overseas sales. As international motorcycle sales volume rose 4.5% from last year, in the U.S., Harley's first quarter sales dipped 0.5%. A decade ago, Harley's sales were 22% from overseas. Now they're 38%. And Harley-Davidson is pushing for 50% of their sales coming from the international market. Harley-Davidson, a big success story of international trade. Anyway, that may be some version of normal politics, exaggerating the specific anecdote, eliding the facts that hurt you. And it's not unprecedented for a lie to get halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to gas up the old hog and hit the open road. But I found this next smear to be particularly annoying. It was not propagated by Trump, just on his behalf. So after the speech, right-wing media, Breitbart, Daily Caller, The Blaze, started a meme. They said that Democrats Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Keith Ellison did not stand up and applaud the widow of Navy SEAL William Ryan Owens. Here's the short explanation of the story. They did stand up and applaud. It's on tape. Here's the longer explanation. There were two applause breaks. We have documentation that during one of them, those people stood up. And we have documentation that at some point during the second applause break, that Wasserman Schultz and Keith Ellison were seated while others were standing. This gave rise, tell me if you think this is fair, this headline in the blaze, meet the Democrats who refuse to stand and applaud the widow of a fallen Navy SEAL. Now, if I know professional politicians, that meeting is going to cost you $500, $312 of which is tax deductible. But the blaze was giving it away for free. Also giving it freely was Daniel Henninger, columnist at the Wall Street Journal. He wrote in that paper, during the speech's most extraordinary moment, the tribute to Karen Owens, wife of slain seal Ryan Owens, one notable Democrat who refused to stand was Rep. Keith Ellison, who just lost a close race for DNC chairman. Now, I know how the mistake was made. Henninger saw it in much of the media he consumes, so he repeated it, but it was a mistake. I tweeted that the Wall Street Journal should correct it. Now, some people said to me on Twitter, what do you expect from the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal? A lot, in fact. That's why I care. I subscribe to the journal. On the editorial page, I like Bill Galston. I like Brett Stevens. I even like Karl Rove's column. Don't agree with it. Like to read it. So we'll see if the journal corrects it. I reached out to the journal, just as any subscriber might, and I was told that the issue is now before the editorial department. So let's hope there's a correction, and perhaps even an amplification, and that the journal, unlike the president, remembers that old line about being entitled to your own opinions, not your own facts. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who plays in Copenhagen's number one Taylor Swift cover band, the Taylor Danes. Chris Berube, gist producer, plays in a Guns and Roses soft jazz ensemble, Sweet Milder Chimes. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, plays in a Canadian rap version of a 90s English rock group, Snowasis. I hate to be the informer of bad news. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, plays in the scandalously delicious cover band of BTO, Kathleen Turner Overbite. They are taking care of business. The gist 
1979, I had assembled a doo-wop group to travel to Iran and sing 1950s covers in praise of the revolution. But Nana Shah never hit big for obvious reasons. Bowser was drunk. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. I know you listen to podcasts. I can prove it. You just heard me say that. And unless you're actually in the room with me, get out of here, Dave. Unless you're Dave, you know how to listen to podcasts. Now, I'm sure you want to spread the joy of podcasts. Or maybe you're the kind of person who only likes the bands that no one else likes. And then when they book big clubs, they're like, oh, I used to like them on their first album. We're still in the first album phase of this media. But we do have to grow it. Because remember, that band that you wanted to keep to yourself, they could break up due to lack of interest. So this is where the tripod campaign comes in. All this month, you want to find a friend, relative, a curious stranger. Okay, that could be fraught. And show them how to try podcasts. Hello, are you a stranger? You are a curious stranger. Let me show you my iPhone now. Okay, just take it, you know, pump the brakes on curious stranger a little. But get this person who you think or suspect might like podcasts and then share your story on Twitter with the hashtag tripod okay so you do whatever you can to get a new b into podcasting but then afterwards you tweet about it and you do try pod hashtag try pod together we could delete podcast unawareness